Well, good morning. I trust, I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. As we have officially entered into the Christmas season, I have the distinct privilege of kicking off our Christmas series this year called Portraits of Christmas. This morning we're going to be looking at a theological portrait of Christmas as we consider that the true Christmas is only found in the true Jesus. And to set the the stage for this, it actually is worthwhile asking what the true Christmas is, because in our increasingly pluralistic, secular, humanistic culture that we find ourselves in, there are a lot of false Christmases around. And that's kind of an interesting subject, because most people in this country still celebrate Christmas in one form or another, but what exactly they're celebrating, what they believe Christmas is, varies greatly. And that's interesting because that's not the case with, you know, July 4th. People don't celebrate different things on July 4th. Every American with even the smallest bit of historical knowledge knows what July 4th is about. There really isn't a whole lot of confusion or disagreement about that. Not so with Christmas. People's ideas about Christmas, uh, like I said, vary greatly. And all of these competing philosophies of Christmas can't all be true Any more than one group celebrating July 4th is our independence from Britain, the founding of our country, while another group celebrates the flag with no knowledge of what it stands for or maybe rejecting it, but they just go around buying each other red, white, and blue presents because those are the colors of the flag they're celebrating. There's no way both of those things could both be true. The latter group has missed the whole point. One understands what's being celebrated. The, The other, at this point, is just celebrating the trappings. There's only one true July 4th, and there's only one true Christmas. It's not unlike how there are many false Jesuses around. There are many people that say they're cool with Jesus, but again, which Jesus they're cool with, who they say Jesus is, varies greatly. And all of these Jesuses can't all be true. There's only one true Jesus. And of course, those two things are intimately connected. Who you say Jesus is directly influences what you believe Christmas is, which Christmas you celebrate. So, for example, for someone for whom Jesus is an afterthought, they're not really sure who he is and don't even really care that much, they probably celebrate the material Christmas, More and more people celebrate this Christmas as our society grows more and more secular. We we see this everywhere. I flipped on the TV recently and saw a show soliciting uh, for for charity and to kind of, you know, gin up some contributions. You know, they said it's the season of giving, after all. That's that's the definition of Christmas. It's the season of giving. And this giving ranges everything from dropping a couple bucks into the Salvation Army can to... Buying your loved one a brand new Lexus with a big red bow on it. Buy a $65,000 car. It's the season of giving. But of course, most people don't give to charity or buy new Lexuses. Lexi, whatever. (laughs) For most people, the material Christmas involves going shopping with the crowds, buying a bunch of stuff so they can gather with friends and family around the tree, listening to Ming Crosby and having a wonderful time opening gifts from one another, which... There's nothing wrong with that. My my family does that. The point is, for many, that's all Christmas means, opening material gifts around a tree on the 25th. I mean, maybe they go to a a Christmas Eve mass or service, but that's probably more likely because grandma drugged them there or it's just a part of the tradition along with Santa Claus. The point is, for, for most, Christmas actually has nothing to do with Christ. 
It's just a wonderful time of the year when everyone's full of good cheer and in a giving mood. Interestingly, a good friend of mine who uh, travels to China regularly training pastors said, at least the parts of China he goes to, uh, if you go to China this time of year, you, you see a similar thing. There's white Christmas playing in the stores. People are buying each other presents in what's pretty much the definition of a secular country. So, you know, apparently they've, uh, you know, we've sort of exported the material Christmas completely devoid of what exactly is being celebrated. There's a, a second and smaller yet very vocal Christmas prevalent today, and that is the Get Rid of Christ Christmas. And this is the group of People who are always offended by all things Christmas, and so they attempt to get rid of every vestige of it from the public square. So you know the story, Christmas trees become holiday trees, and kids don't go on Christmas break, they go on winter recess, and store clerks say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, and so on. But why are these people so offended about Christmas? If Christmas is just about Santa Claus and giving presents on Christmas morning, that wouldn't be offensive any more than celebrating someone's birthday would be. But of course, they're offended because they know we are celebrating someone's birthday. It isn't just about Santa. They know the root of Christmas is distinctly Christian, and so they want to eliminate it. So although it's sad what they're doing, and I think we should counter that with the gospel, by the way, not boycotting Starbucks cups or angrily returning a happy holidays with a Merry Christmas as if that's going to win anybody over. (laughs) But in one way, I I actually respect those who who celebrate this more than those who celebrate the material Christmas because at least they understand ultimately Christmas is about Christ even as they're trying to get rid of him. There's yet another Christmas we regularly find, and that is the sentimental Christmas. Of all the false Christmases, I think this is probably the most dangerous. These are the the many people that have a good understanding of what Christmas celebrates. They know it isn't just about giving gifts and Santa. They don't want to get rid of Christ from Christmas. They want to celebrate him, and they do. And so they might go to a, a Christmas Eve service. They might listen to the Messiah. They might put Jesus as the reason for the season on their Christmas cards. They might seem very religious and pious, but ultimately, all of this is really just Sappy sentimentalism. They have the Christmas spirit in December, but the rest of the year, Christ is clearly not Lord of their lives, which means they may not actually be saved even though they think they are, which is why I said this is maybe the most dangerous of all the false Christmases. So those are are some of the false Christmases. I'm sure you guys can come up with some others. But let's focus now on, okay, so what exactly is the true Christmas then? And as I said said at the beginning, to answer that, uh, that's completely anchored in understanding who the true Jesus is, and to to answer who the true Jesus is, we're going to be spending our time in the book of Hebrews this morning. So you know where we are headed. We're going to study the first 12 verses of chapter 1, and then we're going to skip ahead to verse 6 in chapter 2 and go through the end of that chapter as, as again, we look at the theological portrait of of Christmas, the true Christ and Christmas. So this will be theological this morning. It's in the title of the sermon, but 
ultimately, I, I hope that excites you because the whole point of theology is to cause us to love, know, and worship our God more, and in this case, maybe celebrate Christmas in a, in a new, meaningful, deep way. I, I hope today just propels us to just praise our Lord. That's my only aim and ambition this morning. So, Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. For, the, to, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So this marvelous book just jumps right in by declaring that God spoke in the past through his prophets and fathers of the faith. And of course, this is a direct reference to Old Testament revelation. God spoke through the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He spoke through his prophets, men such as Moses, through whom he gave the law, and later men like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, so on. And these were God's divinely inspired spokesmen for delivering his word is recorded in the Old Testament. Yet this word was incomplete and partial. It was all pointing to something that had yet to be fulfilled. And so as verse 2 says, in these last days, which, by the way, is just a common New Testament term for the period between Christ's first and second coming, so we're about 2,000 years into the last days. In these last days, God spoke through his Son. So God's progressively revealed redemptive plan, his plan that he rolled out throughout the Old Testament to save his people is culminated in his son, Jesus Christ. That's who the prophets were pointing to. But I want you to notice the the distinct contrast between the fathers and prophets and the son. Because this goes a long way in pointing us to the true Christ of the true Christmas and sorting through some of the false Jesuses that are out there. So, for example, this directly refutes Islam. I don't know how many of you know, but Islam actually holds Jesus as a prophet on par with Moses, but ultimately still just a man. This directly refutes Buddhism. Many Buddhists gladly accept Jesus as a, Bu- as a Buddha, one of the few great men who reached enlightenment, but again, ultimately just a man like the other Buddhas. This directly refutes secularists or liberal Christians, for that matter, who are happy to relegate Christ to a wonderful teacher, maybe even the greatest man ever to live who showed us the perfect way to live, but again, ultimately still just a man, a teacher, a prophet. But scripture doesn't let us get away with that. As the writer of Hebrews says in the second verse, Jesus is said to not simply be another prophet or a great man, but he is said to be the Son of God. So while the Old Testament were prof- uh, excuse me, the Old Testament prophets were channels that God communicated His word through, 
As John 1 says, Jesus is the Word. He not only speaks for God, but he speaks as God because Jesus is God. And that's the first truth in understanding the true Jesus and the true Christmas. Jesus the Son is God. And this truth is made clear in these verses in three ways. First, verse 3, Jesus is said to be the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So God was not a God-like, uh, excuse me, Jesus was not a God-like man. He is God in that he's the exact representation of God the Father's nature. As Jesus said to Philip in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If, you've, if you see Jesus, you have seen God the Father's real nature because he is God. But the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years earlier, said something similar in that well-known Christmas verse, Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So in no uncertain terms, the Messiah, the Son, is prophesied to be God, Mighty God. That's the exact term used of God in the very next chapter, 1021. He's the exact imprint of God's nature because he is God. The Father and Son are co-equal in nature, distinct persons, one equal nature. Now, that's difficult theology. Maybe another way to, to say that would be to say that the Father is fully God and the Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God as well, but focus here is on the Father and the Son. So the Father's fully God and the Son's fully God, but the Father isn't the Son and the Son isn't the Father. They're distinct persons with one equal nature. As it says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So Christ's physical birth in Bethlehem that we, we celebrate at Christmas, pictured by all the nativity scenes, that was not the beginning of his existence. He has existed eternally as God the Son, Again, as Micah prophesied, Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, who are too little to be among the clans of, of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And the term ancient of days in Hebrew literally means days of immeasurable time. In other words, we're talking about eternality. Jesus is more than a prophet. He's the eternal Son of God who's the exact imprint of the Father because he is God. We have to understand that to understand the true Christmas. Second, Jesus is, is shown to be God by being said to be greater than the angels. Verse 4 says, having become as much superior to angels. Now, this might seem like kind of an odd comparison at first, but it's significant because angels are, are these powerful creatures, far more powerful than humans. In fact, they're, they're so powerful and impressive that when they appear to humans, humans were just inclined to just fall down and worship them, as John did at the end of Revelation. By the way, this is the John who was on the Mount of Transfiguration, who saw Christ in his glory. This is the John who saw Christ in all his glory in Revelation chapter 1, yet in 19, when this angel appears to him, it says, I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. As that angel said, as impressive as he is, ultimately he's a fellow creature who worships the creator who is infinitely above and beyond both angels and men. We all bow down and worship him. 
And Hebrews 1.6 says exactly that. Speaking of the Son, quoting Deuteronomy 32.43, when it says, let all God's angels worship him. So God the Father commands his angels to worship his Son. Think about what that is explicitly saying about the Son. God clearly states in the Ten Commandments, you shall worship no other God but me. He says in, in Isaiah 43.10, before me no God was formed, nor, nor, there shall, nor, excuse me, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there's no Savior. Scripture makes clear over and over, it is blasphemous to worship any other than the one true God of the Bible. There are none besides him. Israel's judged for doing just that, yet... The angels are commanded to worship the Son by the Father himself. Why? Because once again, Jesus Christ is the one true God, the second person of the Trinity, the I Am of the Old Testament. This Jesus whose birth we celebrate at Christmas is greater than the angels and worshiped by them and us because, again, Jesus is God. And third, Jesus is shown to be God because God the Father explicitly calls him God. So for those who maybe haven't quite connected it yet or kind of want to play games, I don't really think Jesus is God. God the Father just matter-of-factly calls the Son God, verse 8. But of the Son, he says, God the Father says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's one of the most explicit statements in Scripture declaring Jesus to be God. God the Father calls the Son God, whose throne is forever. That's just awesome. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the exact imprint of God the Father's nature. He's much better than the angels, and God the Father calls him God because Jesus is God. And again, that's the first truth in understanding the true Jesus and the true Christmas. The second truth in understanding the true Jesus and the true Christmas is Jesus the Son is creator. Skipping verse 9, picking up in verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So in these verses, the son, this time called Lord, another title of the God of the Old Testament, is said to have laid the foundation of the universe. Back in verse 2, it says the world was made through the son. So if I were to ask you what's the first verse in the Bible about Jesus, and I just gave you a gigantic hint, what would you say? You know, some people's knee-jerk response would be, well, the Gospels, you know, that's the first time Jesus shows up on the scene. We have to say, well, no, we got to go a little bit further back than that. There's a lot of Bible students, and you say, ah, yeah, Genesis 3, the, the proto-Evangelion, the, the first gospel where it, God says that the seed of the woman would bruise Satan on the head, of course, the seed being Christ. And I would say, well done, you, you truly are a, a Bible student. But, but again, we're still not there. The answer is the first verse in the Bible about Jesus is the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning of time, in this world, Jesus already was. He's the eternal living word. God the Father spoke the world into existence through the Son, as verse 2 of Hebrews 1 says. 
And not only is Christ the creator, but the power of his word presently sustains the universe. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. They were all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's astounding to think about the power Christ has to literally hold the universe together. That is crazy. He's the creator and sustainer, but Hebrews 1, 11, and 12 also says he's the recreator. He will one day destroy this universe and make a new one. This universe is only temporary. One day the creator will end this fallen world and create a new perfect one. And again, the power to do that is astounding. But, but again, I want to point out the contrast these verses are making between the temporality of the universe and the eternality of the sun. This world that so many have all of their hopes wrapped up in will one day be rolled up like a scroll, changed like a dirty shirt. But the sun remains unchanged yesterday, today, and forever because he is creator God. So he is creator, sustainer, and ultimately destroyer and recreator of this world. The third truth in understanding the true Jesus and the true Christmas is Jesus the Son is man. This is where we skip ahead to verse 6 of chapter 2. Where it says, It has been testified somewhere... By the way, the writer of the Hebrews is my man. How many times have I said, uh, where's that verse? I think it's in Ephesians somewhere. It's been testified somewhere. <laughs> what is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering." For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil." And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted." So this is quite literally what Christmas is all about, the incarnation. And these verses are remarkable in talking about Christ's incarnation, its purpose and its results, and we're going to look at all of those beginning with the incarnation. 
verses 6 through 8 talk about how the human race was made lower than the angels, yet we've been crowned with glory and honor as we, not the angels, were made in the image of God. And as the pinnacle of God's creation, we were put in charge of all of creation in Genesis 1 to rule and subdue it. That was God's original intention for the human race. Yet Hebrews 2.8 says, we do not yet see all things subjected to man. Why? Well, we lost our dominion because of sin. Adam's sin not only severed man's relationship with God and not only caused physical and spiritual death to the entire human race, but all of creation was cursed as well. This is what it's talking about in, in Romans 8, where it says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So all of creation was impacted because of sin. And most importantly, the human race could never be in the presence of a perfect God. And so we were doomed to physical and spiritual death, which is eternal torment and separation from God as just punishment for our sin and rebellion against our God and creator. As God revealed his redemptive plan, all pointing to the coming one, for centuries Israel could offer temporary sacrifices for temporary atonement for their sins as God ordained, but there was no eternal atonement. There was no eternal Savior until the perfect time that God the Father ordained to send his Son. And again, that's that's what's at the root of Christmas, the Incarnation which, by the way, is the theological term just to define that, simple to define, difficult to understand. The incarnation was the act of God the Son taking to himself a human nature, two natures, one person. And this is important. It says that Christ was a man. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So we've talked about how the son Jesus is truly God, but just as important to the true Christmas is to understand that Jesus is truly man. And like we said, just as he's not God-like, neither is he man-like. He didn't just take the form of man, but he became man in every way with a human nature and will, all the while retaining his divine nature and will. Now, this is difficult theology, but it's vital theology because it points us to the purpose of the incarnation. If you're having a tough time, you know, and I'm not sure I can kind of completely grasp the incarnation, we're all there. None of us can completely comprehend that with our finite minds. But there are some things that are perfectly clear and absolutely essential to Christ saving us. So it's very important when we're talking about the incarnation that we don't misunderstand this. This does not mean that Christ had this distinct nature that was this unique blending of the human and the divine. That's that's not what we're talking about. He's not Hercules. He's not half God, half man. He's not Captain America. He's not man infused with the super serum to make him God-like. 
No, the, the truth of the incarnation is beyond any pagan god or Marvel character. The truth of the incarnation is that Christ, as God, took on a true human nature without sin while retaining his divine nature. Two natures, one person. And again, to, to not understand that completely is human, but to deny it is error and is to not understand the true Christmas because it is absolutely vital to the purpose of the incarnation. In other words, were that theology not true, the whole point of the incarnation, the whole point of Christmas could not have been seen through. And the purpose of the incarnation is to save fallen, sinful people. So we might say the purpose of the true Christmas leads us to the true Easter. We see this in verses 9 through 11. And this is where that that theological work we've done, showing that Jesus is uniquely fully God, fully man, two natures, one person, this is where all this comes into play. Because when it comes to salvation, guys, this this is so unbelievably significant. When it comes to salvation, Scripture is clear about two things. First, Scripture is clear that salvation will come as a work of God himself. God will take the initiative to save fallen man. For example, that verse I read earlier, Isaiah 43, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Scripture makes clear, God is the only Savior. We can't save ourselves. No one can save us. Only God can save us. The Scripture is also clear that salvation will come through a man. For example, Genesis 3, as I read earlier, refers to the seed of a woman destroying Satan. Isaiah 53 talks about a man, a servant, being pierced for our transgressions, among other places. And so that's when we say, well, how in the world can can both God and man save us? That doesn't make any sense. In fact, not only does it not make sense, it's actually completely contradictory until we understand the incarnation. Scripture was uniquely and unbelievably fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. In Christ, we're saved by God acting, God coming, and in Christ, we're saved by a man as our sinless representative. That is absolutely astounding. That's why the the incarnation is so significant. That's why theology is so significant. Nothing less than our salvation is attached to it. That was the purpose of the incarnation. It wasn't just to do miracles. It wasn't just to do good works. It wasn't just to offer us the perfect way to live. It was to pay the penalty and die for sinful man who stands condemned under an eternal death sentence, bringing life to all who repent and believe, fulfilling the seemingly contradictory message of Scripture that both God and man would save us. Glory be to God for his wondrous works. Which leads to the third aspect of Jesus, the Son, being man. And those are the results of the incarnation. And there are three powerful results listed in these verses, beginning verse 14. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that's the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the first result of the incarnation was to break the power and fear of death. Now, although verse 14 says Satan has the power of death, let's make sure that we don't misunderstand that. Satan does not have the power of death in the sense that he can kill someone apart from God's will. If you need a a refresher on that, just read the first couple chapters of Job where Satan could do absolutely nothing to Job unless God said. 
God is absolutely sovereign. He has determined our birthday. He's determined our death day. He's determined every millisecond in between before the foundation of the world, and Satan cannot alter that. But the devil has the power of death in that God declared the wages of sin to be death. And so Satan can rightly demand that penalty be paid. Satan can, you know, chirp in God's ear, so to speak. You know, look at that guy. Look at that girl. And they are just disgusting, despicable sinners. They, they deserve to die. And you know what? He's right. And so death is just this dark presence that hangs over everyone that no one can escape on their own. Yet Christ, in love, came, was incarnated to destroy the stranglehold of eternal death and offer eternal life to all who proclaim him as Lord and Savior. The gospel is glorious, and it's absolutely rooted in the incarnation in Christmas. The second result of the incarnation was to help us, as it says in verse 16. We've talked about how the angels are, are these unbelievable creatures, and they have the luxury of being in the presence of God. Yet when Satan, an angel, rebelled and many angels followed him, their eternal fate was sealed. I don't know how many of you thought about that. There's, there's no savior for fallen angels. And, and God is completely holy and justified in not saving them. And it's absolutely no different for us. God would be totally justified, totally holy. He wouldn't be compromising his character in any way if he didn't save anyone, angels or humans. Because that's what we chose by sinning against him. It's what we deserve. But he didn't leave it at that. Even while we were enemies of his, he sent his son so that we could be saved. Why? Well, there's a lot of answers. I think the primary answer is for his glory, but one of the answers is love. Not that we're so lovable, mind you, but that his love is so great that he loves us even though we don't deserve it. Remember, he created us to be different than the angels. He created us in his image, as his vice regents, to, to glorify him, to live in fellowship with him. And even when we rebelled against him, seeking his throne, seeking to be the God of our own lives, which is exactly what Satan did, by the way, God's love for us, his people, is so great, so merciful, that he would save rebellious creatures like us. The incarnation, the point of which was the cross and the resurrection, was the display of God's undeserving love and help. And the third result of the incarnation is to aid those who are tempted, as it says in verses 17 and 18. This is one of the most practical results of the incarnation as we are saved and set free from sin and death into life and fellowship in Christ. We still live in this world with its constant temptations of sin. It can be overwhelming at times in many ways. It feels like this life is just this never-ending battle against sin for holiness. Yet God, through the incarnation, not only gives us power over death in, in saving us, justifying us, declaring us righteous, but also in sanctifying us, conforming us more and more into his image. So as we go through this life and we're faced with the, the temptations of this world, we can go to God who comes to the aid of those who are his when we're tempted. 
But he doesn't only come to the aid, our aid is God who knows all, but as a man who knows exactly what we're going through, because as it says later in this book, he was tempted in all things as we are, as a man in the incarnation. So how unbelievable to know that we have a God who not only saved us, who not only brought us into fellowship with him, but who can relate to us intimately, not only as God, as man, not only as God, but as man as well. And not only relate to us, but he's actually our high priest who made propitiation, appeased the wrath of God on the cross for our sins, paying the penalty that we deserve. And we now live in right relationship with him as he makes us more and more holy as he is holy. There's, there's just no truth like this in this world. Christmas and the incarnation is, is just truly glorious. Yet, quickly, we have the final and fourth, truth and understanding the true Jesus and the true Christmas, and that is Jesus the Son will be glorified as king over all. And this takes us back to chapter 1, where twice, verses 3 and 13, Jesus is said to sit at the right hand of God the Father, the right hand being the position of power and honor as all authority has been given to him as king of kings. And so at Christmas, we celebrate this king's coming as a baby. And as we talked about, that baby grew and was crucified and resurrected and ascended to the Father as king of the universe. But we would be remiss to to not remind ourselves of this king's second coming. Just as we can't talk about Christmas without talking about Easter, we also can't talk about Christmas, his first coming, without being reminded of the second coming, as our king will return once and for all and rule and reign over this universe that he owns forever and ever, and those who are his long for that day. Well, as we conclude what I, I hope has been a, a rich theological portrait of the true Christ in Christmas, I, I want to I want to read one of, one of the greatest scenes in all of Scripture, familiar words to many of us, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah sees this vision of, a throne, of the throne room of God, and, and God sat on his throne, and he sees this special order of angels, the, the seraphim above the throne, and notice what they're doing. They're above the throne of God at all times. They have six wings. With two, they cover their feet. With two, they fly. And with two, they cover their faces. These are, these are powerful creatures, a special order of angels far beyond us, yet these powerful creatures in the presence of God dare not even look on him as he is so frighteningly perfectly holy. He is, he is so magnificent. He is so perfect. He is so holy that these, these powerful, sinless creatures are just compelled to yell to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
What does that have to do with the true Christ and the true Christmas? Well, baby Jesus, born to poor parents in a barn in an out-of-the-way town called Bethlehem, is that very God who sits on the throne, who holds the universe together, whom the seraphim worship, and who one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him to be Lord of all. So as we celebrate Christmas this year and and we enjoy the, the traditional images and sing the traditional songs, let's remember that the true Christmas marks the arrival of the promised Messiah, God come in the flesh to pay the penalty of our sins, who currently sits on the throne as King of Kings and who one day will return as rightful ruler of this universe that he owns and we will live in his presence forever and ever It is only then when we surrender to and revel in that truth that we understand what a Merry Christmas truly is. Our great God, you you are truly holy and magnificent. We just praise you. We are astounded at you. We are astounded at the truth of the gospel. We're so thankful that you would save us. I just pray that that we, your people, whom you have bought with your blood, that this Christmas season, that we would just revel in you, that we would praise you from the bottom of our souls, that we would just take true joy in this Christmas season in worshiping you and knowing you and glorifying you and pointing others to you, our King. We love you. Amen.